This week we're in Ezekiel chapter 19 and 20. So moving along through the book of Ezekiel. And we're going to cover all chapter 19 and half of chapter 20. And I've called this the history of Israel's rebellions and God's great mercy. As we go through, you'll see it's very applicable to the Christian walk. And we're also going to get into what it means to be a wilderness wanderer versus living in the promised land and also what God called us from, living in the world, being a slave to sin. So I'll pray and we'll we'll get stuck into it. Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for the opportunity to meet together. Thank you for our spiritual family, that we all have the same Father. And Lord, we just, yeah, thank you that we can be together today in Jesus' name. Pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us through your word. Amen. All right, let's do the memory verse. So Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So, moving right on to chapter 19, we're going to get through this pretty quick. This is another little parable. Ezekiel likes talking in parables, so God gives these little parables. Remember why he talks in parables? To get their interest. These guys were spiritually dull, and he tells them these stories to try and pick their interest. So, in chapter 19, I've called it the lamentation of the lions and the vine. So God gives Ezekiel a lament for the dead concerning the last three kings of Judah. So after Zedekiah, the nation of Israel or Judah will cease to exist as a sovereign independent nation for about two and a half thousand years. So we know Israel now as a sovereign nation with a prime minister, you could say a king, you know, they are sovereignly ruled, but for two and a half thousand years, they were not. And this is just at the end of the time period, back in 586 BC, when the last king was about to be disposed by the king of Babylon and taken to Babylon and die there. And the nation was taken into exile. When they came back, of course, they were always under servitude to the different world empires, the Medes, the Greeks and the Romans, etc. So, So just to put this into perspective, imagine what it would be like if Australia ceased to be a sovereign nation and all the Australians, all us Australians, were resettled into China for slave labor. That's the picture here, okay? So if you can kind of feel the pain that is behind this dirge, this lament. And a couple of quotes here. Ezekiel expressed the Lord's sadness over the Judean leadership's failure by chanting this elegy, this mournful poem, over her final rulers prior to their deaths. That's from Alexander and one from Bloch. So long as a descendant of David occupied the throne in Jerusalem, the Judeans could hope in divine protection. After all, Yahweh had made an eternal covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. He would surely not abandon his designated ruler or the people he represented. Ezekiel's aim in this dirge is to demolish another false theological pillar on which the nation's sense of security was based. Yahweh's covenant with David is hereby suspended. And that's the end of that quote. But what we need to remember, it's suspended but not annulled and it's not cancelled. Why? because the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is Jesus coming back to rule and reign. He's the king from the line of David, who is the ultimate king. He will rule on the earth for a thousand years during the millennium after the tribulation. We'll get more into that later. We're just going to basically read through it, and I'll explain as we go. It's pretty simple. Verses 1 to 9 is the lament, a lamentation for the final kings of Judah. It says, Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What is your mother? Meaning Jerusalem or Judah. A lioness. She lay down among the lions, among the young lions. She nourished her cubs, like the princes, the royal family. She brought up one of her cubs, and this was King Jehoaz, 
the son of Josiah, and he became a young lion, representing a king. He learned to catch prey, and he devoured men, meaning he was a very cruel and oppressive king. The nations also heard of him, and he was trapped in their pit, and they, in this case Pharaoh Necho, brought him with chains. He was taken captive to the land of Egypt. When she, Jerusalem, Judah, saw that she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another one of her cubs, another one of the princes, the royal family, in this case King Jehoiachin of Judah, and made him a young lion, a king. He robed among the lions, and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He was also a very cruel and oppressive king. He knew the desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolated by the noise of his roaring. So he was very destructive in his rule, very corrupt. Verse 8, Then the nations, led by Babylon, stood against him from the provinces on every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit. They put him in a cage with chains. That's how you catch a lion, right? In a cage. So it's a picture of like trapping a wild animal. They put him in a cage with chains and brought him exiled to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. So basically he never returned. So God describes the last kings of Israel as lions who devour prey. So lions are majestic animals, the king of their jungle, so to speak, and that's why it's used here. But instead of using their God-given authority to protect their people, they devoured and oppressed them. Now we move to the next part of this chapter. It's verses 10 to 14. It's a lamentation for the end of Judah's sovereign self-rule. It's the end of the royal family, basically. So, verse 10, your mother, Jerusalem or Judah, was like a vine in your bloodline, like the royal family, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches, like full of princes, rulers and kings, because of many waters. She had strong branches for scepters of rulers or kings. She towered in stature above the thick branches, meaning other nations, and was seen in her height amid the dense foliage. So, There were times in their history when they were really, really strong as a nation and all the other nations were paying tribute to the nation of Israel. Like in the days of King David and King Solomon. Verse 12. But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground and the east wind dried her fruit. That's the Babylonian exile. The destruction of Jerusalem and the country. All the other cities as well. Her strong branches, kings, were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. And now she is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. So a picture of the nation of Judah and Jerusalem going into exile in Babylon. Verse 14, Fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit. So this is interesting. The fire, the destructive fire, comes from one of the branches, one of the kings. It's the result of their wickedness that they are being judged, that they have gone into captivity. It's their own fault. It's their own sin that has brought this upon them. So that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. So in other words, there are no more kings ruling over Judah or Jerusalem. So again, think of Australia without a prime minister and without a homeland. Okay, that's what it's like. It's the sadness that's being communicated here. And it's all because of their own sin. Their bad choices to rebel against God. So now, chapter 20. Really interesting. So I've got an outline here because it's quite long. We're only going to get through half. But you can see where it's going. So this is the history of Israel's rebellions and God's great mercy. So the outline goes like this. The first we have the introduction. So the elders come to Ezekiel and inquire of God. We've seen that before. But then God describes Israel's rebellion in several stages. So firstly, their rebellion against him in Egypt, when they were in Egypt as slaves. Israel's rebellion against God in the wilderness. So God brings them out of Egypt and they continue to rebel in the wilderness, despite his care. And then Israel's rebellion against God in the promised land. 
So even though he was faithful to bring into the promised land, they continued to rebel and worship their idols. And then it goes on and it jumps into the future. It's the future judgment and separation of Israel at the end of the tribulation. In verses 33 through 38, we'll get into this next week. And then it goes on to the restoration and regathering of Israel after this judgment, which is being fulfilled today. In 1948, Israel became a nation again, and it also refers to the millennial reign when Jesus will rule and reign over Israel and the world. And then it finishes with, it comes back to the present day in Ezekiel's time, the coming judgment upon the land of Judah. So God gives them a promise, but then he says, you know what, the judgment's still coming today. So this is typical of prophetic writings. It bounces around from the present day, or Ezekiel's day, to the end times, thousands of years in the future, and back again. (laughs) And that's why you need to understand the prophetic timeline. So you know the basic order of events, as outlined in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And once you know the basic outline of events, you can fit all these different things into it, and it's not so hard to navigate your way through the scriptures. So we're in the church age. The next event is the rapture. Then it's the seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus comes back at the end of that with us, the church. And then there's the millennial reign, where we reign with him for a thousand years on the earth. And then there's the great white throne judgment where all the unbelievers are judged. And then you have eternity, new heavens and new earth. And this is all in the book of Revelation at the end there. And we can fit these prophecies into the scriptures, into the time frame God has established. And it's really easy to understand. So getting into the introduction, the elders come to Ezekiel and inquire of God in verses 1 to 4. It came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I would not be inquired of by you. I'm not going to listen. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. So this should sound familiar because it is familiar. There's something similar in chapter 14. So I'm going to read that verse, verse 3 in chapter 14. It says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? So same question. And the answer, of course, is no. So there, in chapter 14, God focused on the hidden sins of their hearts. Now, in this chapter, God proceeds to give them a history lesson, where, like it says in verse 4, to make known to them the abominations of their fathers. And he highlights Israel's chronic unfaithfulness to him and his great patience and mercy towards them over a long period of time. And we're talking like a thousand years from the... Exodus through to this time, including the time of the judges and all the times of the kings. So God has been very patient. So as we go through, we'll see that God definitely did choose the weakest, smallest, and most unworthy nation to showcase his grace, mercy, power, justice, patience, and love. And as we've seen a few times now, the chapter follows the typical outline of God's dealings with his people. He chastens them, letting them know in no uncertain terms how evil they are and how wrong they are. But then he offers forgiveness if they repent. There's always a chance to come back. He's always willing for us to come back if we repent. And then he also promises to keep the unconditional promises that he has made to them. So it doesn't matter how much they sin, the unconditional promises will always stand So, for us as Christians, the unconditional promises are justification, sanctification, glorification. God will do those works in us. Justification, that sins are gone. Sanctification, we'll be changed into the image of Christ. And glorification, we get a new body and spend eternity with God. So, 
Those things are unconditional promises. We'll get into some conditional ones a bit later. Now, an application here. I will not be inquired of by you, verse 3. So, if we are unsaved, if a person is unsaved, then their sin remains a barrier between them and God. They are his enemy, and their legal status before God is condemned or guilty. And so, if they don't rectify that situation by humbling themselves, asking God for forgiveness, and repenting of their sins, then they will stand before God and be declared guilty and go to the lake of fire. In contrast, if we are saved, our legal status before God is justified or innocent. So, we will not go to the lake of fire. It doesn't matter how badly we mess up in this life. Once we have exercised that initial faith that God has given us to believe in him and repent, then our salvation is secure. But a saved person can still choose to not submit to God and live by his power. And we all do this to some degree, right? If we did it all the time, we'd be perfect. Some of us do it more than others. We'll talk more about this later. So although as a Christian I am a part of God's family and are still a friend of God, I can be out of fellowship with God. I'm no longer on talking terms with God. And this is what it was like for most of the Israelites. And that's why God says to them, they're his people, but he says to them, thus says the Lord God, have you come to inquire of me, to talk to me? to communicate with me, as I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. So it's like a husband and wife who've had a fight. They're still married, they're still family, but they're not on talking terms. They're not enjoying that sweet communion or fellowship with each other like they should be. So submission to God's will and repentance are the answer in both cases. And then God's Spirit will work in us, giving us the power and the desire to obey. And I just wanted to read Romans 8, 5 and 6 and 11 to 13 just to and help us focus on this whole idea of submitting to the Spirit and not letting ourselves be dominated by our sinful nature. So, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So this is talking to the believer, right? We have a choice. There's a battle that's going on in our mind. Who's going to control your mind? The Holy Spirit or your sinful nature? The nature we're born with, the human nature. Verse 11 goes on. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to immortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. You don't have to anymore. We're free. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if, through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you repent, you will live. So, when it says die there, it's not talking about spiritual death, it's talking about just the painful consequences, the natural consequences of sin. And there was a student who was a believer and he knew he shouldn't get back into the drugs, but he did. He went a bit cuckoo and he killed himself. That's where it goes, you know. You can be a believer, but if you make bad decisions, it's going to hurt you. It leads to death. Death of relationships, and, and even in his case, physical death. It was very sad. So, we move on to the next section. Israel's rebellion against God in Egypt. And this is verses 5 to 9. It says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath, to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. See how many times it's repeating the word oath? An oath is a promise. So, on that day I raised my hand in an oath to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, into a land that I had searched out for them. Flowing with milk and honey, 
the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. And Egypt in the scriptures is a picture of the world, the evil world system. I am the Lord your God, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Imagine that, God destroying his own people in the midst of the land of Egypt. Well, he couldn't, could he? Why not? He promised to take them out. God's in a bit of a bind. So what's the answer? Verse 9. But I acted for my name's sake, for my glory, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this is very interesting. Well, I think it is. So in verses 5 and 6, raise my hand in an oath. God promised a long time ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I will bring you into this land which I swore to Abraham. Remember God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your descendants will come back into this land. So that's the promise he's talking about, to bring them out of Egypt and into the land. So here we come to this application. God wants to bring us out of the land of Egypt, or the people out of the land of Egypt, into a land. So he brings us out so he can bring us in. And it says that I had searched out for them flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. So when God searches out things for us to give things to us, is he giving us second best or is he giving us the best? The best. So God looked around the whole world and he said, this is the best place for you to live. It's the glory of all the lands. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's the best place. God loves us. So this is proof that God always desires to give us what is best for us. So he loves us so much that he won. He brings us out of the land of Egypt, a picture of the world where we are slaves to sin and therefore suffer the miserable consequences of sin, which, as we just read, lead to death. So God leads us out of Egypt. He sets us free from sin, the bondage of sin, so we can be spared the sad, miserable, and painful existence that results from living in bondage and servitude to sin. That's the ways of the world. But he doesn't just stop us from sinning. He doesn't just take us out of the world and we sit there with our hands folded and do nothing. There's something else he brings us into, right? So he can lead us into the promised land, where by the power of God living in us, we have the opportunity to walk by faith in obedience to God's will. So this enables us to enjoy the blessings he has prepared for us in the life of faith. We're going to get into that more today. That's what the picture or the promised land is a picture of. So some of the benefits that we are invited to enjoy while here on earth as a believer, as we live by faith and not by sight, feelings or emotions or works. Okay, so some of the benefits that we can enjoy now by faith include freedom from the power and therefore also the negative consequences of sin. We can experience a wonderful, intimate and unconditional love relationship with God. We can experience joy, peace, satisfaction, and genuine contentment that transcends all circumstances, no matter what we go through. We can have greatly enhanced relationships with others due to our mutual love for Christ. We experience the acceptance and emotional security that comes from belonging to God's family. And we have the eternal hope, heaven, we live with God forever. And there's many more blessings that we can't even begin to understand until we actually get to heaven. However, you might say that as a believer, I don't experience these things to any great degree or only to a slight degree. Why is this so? Well, again, a lot of the promises God gives us here while we're here on this earth are conditional. They're conditional on our obedience. And God never forces us to leave the old life so we can enjoy the new life. He just gives us the opportunity to. So. Verse 7 is really key here. It's a key to help us to understand how we can enjoy, fully enjoy, the blessings that God has for us. 
So verse 7 says, Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is a picture of the world system, yeah? So, again, our enjoyment of God's blessings is conditional on our willingness to leave behind our old ways and life so we can enjoy our new life in Christ. So, key statement here, the degree or extent that I choose to leave the old life behind and stop defiling myself with evil will be the same degree or extent that I will enjoy the new life, freedom and blessings available to me in my new life in Christ. Now, the promise that we read in Deuteronomy is that God always commands us to do things which are for our good. It says in Deuteronomy 6, 20-25, a parallel passage to what we're reading here in Ezekiel. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Now, take this in the New Testament. It's a picture of Jesus defeating Satan on the cross. Colossians 2, 13-15. Pharaoh in the scriptures is a picture of type of Satan. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in. Notice that again. He brought us out that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. So we think of God's rules as sometimes being a burden We think, oh, I just wish I could do what those other people are doing. I just wish I could be more like the world, you know, have fun, you know. You can be at the show and you can be a teenage girl and not wear very much and be shivering like I saw a lot of, you know. Or you can be suffering from the side effects of vaping and you can, you know, so-called enjoy the ability to do what you want to do. But, of course, it's just dumb isn't it so god gives us rules god gives us guidelines for our good always not sometimes always and so his way is the best way it's the way that's going to lead us to abundant life what does jesus say i've come to give you life and life abundantly the devil comes to kill steal and destroy john 10 10 so an example of leaving the world behind, and someone who literally did this, is Moses. He literally left Egypt. He literally gave up all the worldly fare that was available to him in Egypt. And his example also shows us that what is best for us isn't always the easiest or most pleasant road in the short term. However, it does lead to great reward. Remember, The road that leads to God, the road that leads to heaven, is the narrow and difficult road, not the wide and easy road. Okay, So Moses left, so to speak, the wide, easy road that leads to hell, and he put himself on the narrow road that leads to heaven. So let's read about Moses in Hebrews 11, 24 to 27. It was by faith. Remember, this is a faith journey, yeah? And notice how many times faith is used. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called or identify with the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. So, what did he have? What did he give up? He was next in line, many believed, to be the next pharaoh. The fleeting pleasures of sin. He would have enjoyed the pleasures of sin for his whole life, but that's still a fleeting pleasure, isn't it? Because our life is like a vapor. 
and it says, He chose to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. If he was going to be the next Pharaoh, he would have owned it all. He would have had it all. He gave it all up. He didn't identify with that system anymore. He gave it up. He left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Now, this is important. Something that's really encouraged me, and it's spoken to me personally, so I want to share it with you. And the application here is not fearing the king's anger in Hebrews 11.27 there. So Pharaoh is a picture of Satan, the ruler of this world system. And when through the power of God we say no to sin and we start to disconnect ourselves from this world system, Satan's kingdom, right? Well, Satan doesn't like it and he gets angry. And therefore he starts to make life harder for us. Meaning, Our decision to overcome sin, to turn away from sin, to repent, will inevitably result in spiritual warfare where Satan will do anything he can to oppose us using trials and persecution and temptation. Okay, So this applies to when we are in a ministry or we are just growing personally. Satan makes it easy for us to sit back and relax when we are only half-heartedly following the Lord. He tries to deceive us to think that we're all good with God because life is good. It's easy. He's not touching us. They're asleep. Let's leave them alone, yeah? However, when the door opens for effective ministry or personal growth or obedience, when God stirs our heart and says, you need to move on from this place, then Satan makes life hard for us and tries to make us wish that we had never tried to change and that life was better when we were living for ourselves and enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. A good example of this principle is in 1 Corinthians 16.9. It's Paul talking, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Life's tough. Awesome opportunity, but where there's opportunity, Satan's also there to try and stop us from taking advantage of that opportunity. So coming back to Moses, just to reiterate this point, Moses is a perfect example. If he had only been content to continue to live a life of compromise and remain identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he would have had the best and most easy and most luxurious life imaginable from a worldly perspective, right? But no, there was an effective door for ministry and personal growth that opened for Moses when God called him to identify with his people, the children of Israel. So in giving up the worldly comforts and security, he faced many adversaries and experienced much suffering. So for us, we need to be like Moses and not fear the king's anger, not fear Satan's anger. We need to resist him anyway, knowing that Jesus defeated him on the cross. When we give in and when we obey Satan, it's a sign of a lack of faith in God and that we actually fear or reverence Satan more than we do God in a kind of indirect way. Just like the first generation of Israelites did when they refused to trust God to overcome the giants in the land of Canaan. And God gives us a warning about this. We would do well to heed the stern warning given to us in the book of Hebrews concerning the first generation of Israelites who left Egypt but never got to enter the promised land. So when we do compromise, there's this terrible price we pay for being a half-hearted, unbelieving, sin-loving, hard-hearted Christian. So let's read Hebrews 3, 8-19. It says this, This is why the Holy Spirit says, Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. So this is going back to our passage in Ezekiel. This is the New Testament commentary on what we're reading in Ezekiel, the rebellion in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested me and tried my patience, and even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Verse 12 continues. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, 
so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Remember, he's talking to believers. If we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. So we're not talking about losing our salvation, but we can share in everything. Remember, he's gone and searched out all the best things. He wants to give it to us. But if we're not walking by faith, we're not in a position to receive them. Verse 15, again, this word remember, yeah? Remember what it says. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God? Even though they heard his voice in Mount Sinai, the booming voice, the trumpet. Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned? Whose corpses laid in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would not enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. So this whole thing about not entering God's rest is a big thing. We're going to get into it next week because this chapter in Ezekiel goes into the Sabbath entering his rest. That's in the second half of the chapter. So wait till next week to get into that. And we'll now go on to verse 8. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So you see that's just like what you just read in the book of Hebrews. They continued to rebel. They did not cast away the abominations. The idols which were before their eyes, they did not forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So even before they got out of the land of Egypt, they were so rebellious, they made God so angry, he wanted to destroy them in the land of Egypt. God promised to deliver them from slavery. And what do they do? They rebel. They completely ignored God and went on with their worldly lives. Now, they did do some things right. We have to give them some credit. But from God's point of view, from the heart point of view, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. And there's evidence of this. I'll go through a couple of verses. This attraction to the Egyptian gods. In Exodus 32, 1-6, the Israelites, what do they build and worship? Their golden calf. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments, and when he comes back, they're all partying around a golden calf. Joshua 24, 14, Joshua says to them, Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And the worship of the golden calf was made by Jeroboam after the kingdom split north and south. In 1 Kings 12, 26-23, they made golden calves and worshipped them again. So that ties back to the gods they had in Egypt. So as a result, they were under God's wrath and God had the right to completely destroy them in the land of Egypt. However, though they deserved to be wiped out in Egypt, why weren't they? Well, verse 9. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight, I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So, this is interesting, right? The people were so wicked and so unfaithful and so rebellious that God can find no good reason to forgive them and bring them out. There's no good reason. They're so unworthy, they're so undeserving. The only reason God brings them out is to save his reputation. But I acted for my name's sake. You see, God had made a promise to Israel publicly and it would damage God's reputation among the nations if he didn't keep his promise to the nation of Israel to actually bring them out of Egypt. People would think, oh, God promises, but then he couldn't do it. See? Therefore, God did keep his promise to bring the Israelites out of Egypt for his name's sake because he had given the nation of Israel an unconditional promise. So a couple of quotes. When God could find no basis in them for extending to them his mercy and grace, 
He did it solely for his name's sake, that is, for his own glory. And one from Bloch, the divine reputation depends on the fate and welfare of his people. All of God's dealings with Israel were public before the eyes of the nations. Israel was to be the agent through whom the nations would come to know that he is Yahweh. Is this the same for us as a church? Are we before God? Are we the light to the world? Can the world see what's going on with us? Do you think so? Same thing, isn't it? Now, quick application. Saved by grace through faith. We apply this to now. This is what this verse in Ephesians is talking about. You know, being saved by grace through faith. And I want to go back to the Exodus. There's two things there which are a picture of salvation. So the first thing is the blood of the Passover lamb that was voluntarily applied to the doorposts. That protected those who believed. Now, a couple of weeks ago we talked about how do you know if your faith is real? Well, it leads to action, it leads to change, right? So those who believed were the ones who actually painted the blood on the doorpost. You could believe that the blood would save you, but if you didn't actually do anything about it, you would still die. True? So you can know about salvation, but if you don't apply it, you will die. You will be destroyed by sin, the wrath of God. So the blood put on the doorpost is a picture of the blood of Christ shed on Calvary, protecting those who voluntarily receive it to protect them from God's wrath towards sin. And also the Red Sea crossing is a picture of being baptized into, identified with, or immersed in, that's what baptism is, in Christ. And Romans 6, 3-5 is a parallel passage to this, but I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. It says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So we're one body in Christ, right? For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. So what does the baptism mean? It's identified with, immersed, or baptized into. Okay, So we're in Christ, we're all baptized into Christ. It's a new identity. They're saved, they are the people of God. Going through the Red Sea, the Passover, it makes them the people of God. It's a picture of salvation. So there was nothing and there is still nothing in us that makes us the church deserving or worthy of being saved, just like with the nation of Israel. And so God makes salvation available to us Gentiles simply because he had promised to in the Old Testament. And God always keeps his promises. So some of the quotes, the Old Testament quotes, you can find them in Romans chapter 10. And God, in these quotes from the Old Testament, he's promising that the Gentiles would also experience salvation, or salvation would also be made available to the Gentiles. So Romans 10, 11 and 12 and 19 and 20. As the scriptures tell us, this is the Old Testament now, being quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And going on to verse 19. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who were not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. Through us being saved and them not, it's provoking them to jealousy. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people, the Gentiles, who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. So you see, our salvation is purely by grace. Not because we deserved it. Not because we're wonderful. Like the Israelites, they continually rebelled. Our hearts are continually rebellious too. Our sinful nature doesn't want to follow God. So God, because he promised it, he acts on his promise. Why do he promise? Because he loves us, right? He loves the people he created. So in the end, the salvation of any man, Jew or Gentile, comes down to God acting for his name's sake. Interesting, isn't it? 
That's what we get from this passage in Ezekiel. He's acting for his name's sake, for his glory. So because he loved us, he promised through the Messiah's death on the cross to make the way of salvation to all mankind, and so he did, even though we were not looking or asking for God. So this is a sobering, like it makes it quite humble, but also very comforting. Why? Because this is grace. This is God demonstrating his grace to us, his undeserved favor toward us. We don't have to meet some minimum standard or requirement of goodness or morality to be saved. God accepts us the way we are. We are morally bankrupt. There is no good in us. So none of us can say that God saved me because I was a good person. None of us deserve to be given the opportunity to accept God's invitation to be reconciled to himself. And we come to that awesome verse in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, if I hope you understand this, God saved him for his own name's sake. Not because they were good people, he saves us for the same reason. He made a promise in the Old Testament, he would save the Gentiles. And he has. He's created the church. So the church, we're not better than Israel. A lot of people, you know, the replacement theology thing, they think that, you know, the church is spiritual Israel and all that kind of stuff. No. We are the church. Israel is Israel. They are the physical descendants of Abraham. Yes, we are spiritual descendants, but we're not physical descendants. And God's promises are for the physical descendants of Abraham. That's who he made them to, not the spiritual descendants. They weren't deserving. It's true, but neither are we. So now we come to the third part. We're going to finish on this one. Israel's rebelling against God in the wilderness. So Israel weren't grateful for what God did for them in bringing them out of Egypt, but surely their attitude would change after the ten plagues, you know? God protecting them and bringing them out and all those amazing miracles. Let's find out what their reaction was. Ezekiel 20, 10-17 Therefore I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. So God did what he promised to do, though they didn't deserve it. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Remember? At the Mount Sinai, he gave them the law. And what is the law? If a man does, he shall live. If he don't, you'll die. Very simple. How many do you need to keep? All of them. If you're going to keep one, you have to keep all of them. So you can be saved by keeping the law if you are perfect. If you break in one law one time, it's curtains for you as far as your salvation as far as if you're going to be made perfect by the law. Okay, remember, whichever man does, he shall live by them. The law was never designed to save anyone. It was only put there to show us that we're sinners, right? And to show us God's character. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me. We'll get into this more next week, but the Sabbath is a sign between God and the nation, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who separates them from the nations. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he should live by them. It's repeated there, see? And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. The same thing you said about when they're in Egypt, right? But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles, in whose sight I had brought them out. Remember, he'd promised to take them into the promised land. If he destroyed them all in the wilderness, there were no one to take in the promised land. He hadn't kept his promise. Oh, God's weak. He can't keep his promise, you see. So he has to act for his name's sake, for his glory. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles, in whose sight I had brought them out. Verse 15 is key here. We'll get into it in a minute. So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all the lands. Because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, 
but profaned my Sabbath, for the heart went after their idols. What did God ask them to do in the start of the chapter? Get rid of your idols, turn away from them. But the heart never changed, they never truly repented in their hearts. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. But what did God do? He also said they're not going to go into the promised land. See this conditional promise? If they had obeyed, that generation could have gone into the promised land. But we read in Hebrews that they didn't go because of unbelief. They allowed their heart to be hard, right? So let's have a look at the parts that are underlined, the parts where God shows them grace. So this shows the depraved condition of man's heart, completely unfaithful, unthankful, and selfish. Now God delivered his people from their slavery and bondage in Egypt, yet they continued to rebel against him in the wilderness. And the same thing happens as when they're in the land of Egypt. It's a repetition. So this is the process. Their rebellion against God incurs his wrath, and they deserve to be destroyed. And then I said, I will pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But God can't destroy them because he has made a promise in verse 6 to bring them into the promised land. He says, on the day I raise my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. That's his promise. So God preserves his reputation, his glory, his honor, by keeping his promise. It says, But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. So remember, it's through Israel that God is revealing himself to the nations. Today, it's through the church. In the tribulation, it went back to Israel. God will use Israel again. Now, in the end, God shows them mercy. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. However, there are consequences to forgiven sin, yeah? He didn't destroy them, but here's the consequence. Here's the application, the consequence of their rebellion. We read previously in Hebrews 3 that the first generation of Israelites were not able to enter the promised land because their hearts were hard and the sin of unbelief. It's true that God didn't destroy them, but he also left them wandering in the wilderness. Remember verse 15 and 16? So I raised my hand in an oath of promise to them that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them for their hearts went after their idols. So, God didn't destroy them. They didn't stop being his people, but they didn't get to enjoy the awesome benefits that God had searched out for them. Remember he went and searched out the best place for them to live? But because of that unbelief, they never got to enjoy it. So, two key points. Eventually, there's a terrible price to pay for being a half-hearted, unbelieving, sin-loving, hard-hearted Christian. Basically, if I'm like that, I'm choosing to live in the wilderness. The wilderness there was like rocky, hard. It wasn't like forest and that. It was desert. Snakes and scorpions and, you know, not a nice place to live, yeah? 40 years walking around those kind of environments. So the degree or extent that I choose to leave the old life behind and stop defiling myself with evil will be the same degree or extent that I will enjoy the new life, freedom and blessings available to me in my new life in Christ. So we're going to learn about the wilderness experience now to finish off. What does it mean to have a wilderness experience? And I want to introduce the concept there's a legitimate and an illegitimate wilderness experience. There's a proper wilderness experience and a wrong or improper wilderness experience. So, what is this wilderness experience? And how do we apply this to the New Testament? Well, it's a time of learning to trust God. It's understanding who God is by reading his word and learning how to please him. So, when you first came to know Christ, did you know the Bible very well? Did you understand what God required of you or God wanted from you? No. Did you have much faith? No. Okay. So when we first come to Christ, we are babies in Christ. We're babies in our faith. And so God helps us to grow up. It's like parents with kids, young kids, they have a lot of support. And so initially the kids have a lot of support and so do we as baby Christians. So there's a legitimate time when we are learner Christians, if I can call it that. 
You know, you got your L plates on. Learner Christians, you don't really know what you're doing. You're saved. You understand that you're saved. But that's about it. How do you overcome sin? Well, I can't do that yet. How do I walk by faith? Well, I'm not sure. I have to read the Bible. I have to find out. I have to learn to trust, yeah? And it's like joining the army or the police force. They don't immediately send you to the front lines. Imagine if they did that. You know, if they got me and said, okay, you're assigned to a tank battalion. I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be, you know, fodder for the guns, you know. Target practice. They don't put you in the front line straight away. They train you for a year or so. They prepare you in your mind and your body. And then they put you to work. And that's the way God works too. It's a time of preparation, a time of learning, a time of developing and maturing our relationship with God. A time when we can learn to respond to God's promises and overcome sin in our lives. And 1 John 2.14 talks about the young men. They're growing up from being children. They have the word of God in them and they have overcome sin. Also, God makes us into a vessel of honor so he can use us for his glory in uh, 1 Timothy 2.21. Now, this is also true for the nation of Israel. It took time to change them from thinking as slaves to start to think as free people. Because in the nation of Egypt, where there were slaves, they had to do what Pharaoh wanted. That was their mindset. We need to please Pharaoh. He provided their food. He provided everything for them. Now, God brings them out, and they've got to learn to trust God. It's a whole different way of thinking, trusting God, as opposed to living according to the world and finding our satisfaction and contentment in that place, like in spiritual Egypt. So what did God do? Well, God gave them safe opportunities to learn to trust him. He protected them from war for a time. And he revealed his tremendous power at Mount Sinai, his ability and faithfulness to provide for them with manna and quail for food, water from the rock, the cloud by day and the fire by night. He gave them more of his written word through Moses. They were at Mount Sinai for about a year. So they were there for quite a while. It wasn't a short experience. God was preparing his people for what was coming. What was coming? War. Battles. Yeah? So the legitimate wilderness experience for the Israelites was under two years, taking into account travel time and the time they spent at Mount Sinai. God took this time to work with his people, demonstrate his power and faithfulness to them and teach him his ways. And then he took them to the border of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. And then he said, all right, boot camp's over. It's time to go. It's time to start fighting. It's time to start trusting. I've shown you enough of my goodness. I've shown enough of my power. Trust me. And Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3 says this. And get the irony that Moses puts in here, or the Holy Spirit puts in here. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, in Saudi Arabia, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, the border of the Promised Land. And then verse 3, Now it came to pass in the 40th year. <laughs> in the 11th month of the first day of the month, etc., that Moses talked to the people. So the illegitimate wilderness experience was 40 years, or the, the next 38 years really, of for the nation. The entire first generation of those who were 20 years and older ended up dying in the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. So 11 days it should have taken from Sinai. 40 years later, still in the wilderness. They are at the same place, the same level of maturity 40 years later. What a sad place to be. Wandering around, not growing, just never maturing. You know, I often think of a grown man wearing a nappy. Never growing out of nappies, you know, never growing up. It's really sad to see Christians who have been Christian for a long time still in nappies. Yeah, they're still baby Christians. We'll get on to that in a sec. So at that time, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, none of them had experience walking by faith. And again, there's a lot of Christians today who 
are like the first generation of the children of Israel. They spend their whole lives wandering. And again, we'll come back to that at the end. So we read in Hebrews that they still didn't trust God. And when the spies went into the land, we'll read the story in a sec, they gave a bad report of the land because they didn't believe that they could overcome the huge people and the fortified cities that were there. They didn't have enough faith to live by faith. You see? They'd seen God deliver them from Egypt, like our salvation, a picture of our salvation, but they couldn't trust him to overcome these giants in the land. And as a result, he said that anyone in that generation who was 20 years old and over at that time would not enter the promised land. And what followed is the longest funeral procession in history. Two million people dying over 40 years as they wander around in that scorpion and snake infested wilderness. Stones, sand. That's why God provided this cloud and the fire because it was desert, it was cold and it was hot. Israel was still God's people, but their unbelief had rendered them useless and they missed out completely on all the blessings that God had waiting for them in the promised land. So let's read the story. It's really quite illustrative. And we can learn a lot from this. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 38. So we departed from Horeb, Mount Sinai, and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites. So great and terrible wilderness, tough place to live. As the Lord our God had commanded us. This is the first time they went there when they refused, right? This retelling the story. Then we came to Kadesh Benia. And I, Moses, said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, and let them search out the land for us, and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up, and of the cities into which we shall come. The plan pleased me well. They didn't really ask God, did they? But that's beside the point. So I took twelve of your men, one from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains, and came to the valley of Eshkol, and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us. How can you come to that conclusion after all he's done for them? Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren, look at this, our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim, the giants there. And this is where their doubt and unbelief show. This is what it's talking about in the book of Hebrews. Their doubt and their unbelief. They refused to go in. Verse 29. Then I, Moses, said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you, according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Remember, he's already proven himself. He had to been through boot camp. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, for all that, you did not believe in the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and the cloud by day. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took a oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see their good land of which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb and Joshua. Because they were faithful. So, conclusion. What does an illegitimate wilderness experience look like for us in the New Testament? 
A person may be a true or genuine believer, let's assume they're a true or genuine believer, yet they can be someone who wastes their life living for themselves instead of God. They can be someone who chooses not to repent and instead continues in their sin. They can be someone who never really learns to trust God to overcome difficulties. They usually fret and worry when hard times come, and they seek help from the world, but not God. Someone who doubts God's love for them despite all the good he has done for them. Someone who continues to be a friend of the world and finds pleasure in worldly entertainment. Someone who complains instead of giving thanks. Someone who neglects God's word, prayer, fellowship and giving. Someone who is not committed to consistently serve God and play their role in the local church. Instead they church hop looking for the best experience, what will make them feel the best or what church best suits their needs, what they can get from it. Someone who is carnal or immature and so doesn't have a good understanding of God's word. And there's a couple of verses you can look up. 1 Corinthians 3.2 and Hebrews 5.12-14 are really good to look up. Basically, Paul says, I can't teach you because you are carnal, you're babies, you don't understand the word, you're not ready for solid food, you're still on milk, you're still babies, you haven't grown up, you're still in the wilderness, you're still in nappies. So if this is you, if you're not growing in your walk with Christ, if you're at the same point in your relationship with God now as you were a year or two years ago, if you don't have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a thirst for God's word and a desire to pray, then repent of your lack of faith. Ask God to change your heart so you can walk by faith. That's what it comes down to. They lacked faith. They did not have faith. They heard the word, and it says in Romans, but it wasn't mixed with faith. So next week's going to be really good. This is a bit of a downer. Next week, what is it to walk by faith? Yeah? So look forward to next week. But for now, you can do a bit of reflection. All of us have something that we can reflect on here. Why? Because none of us have perfect faith, yeah? Okay. So I'm not picking on any one particular person. If it feels like that, I'm sorry. But I'm just as convicted as anyone else because there's areas in my life where I still need to grow. We all need to continue growing. It's not like, oh, we get there and we're finished. Yeah, we get our nappies, but we still continue to grow and develop in our walk with God. But we don't want to stay in nappies. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to go through this pretty powerful passage in Ezekiel and Deuteronomy and Hebrews, all talking about the Israelites and their faithless, for the most part, journey. But your faithfulness, Lord, despite their faithlessness, despite their unbelief. Lord, they did exercise a little bit of faith to come out and to obey you when you told them to leave. But they still held on to their idols. They still sought protection in Egypt. They still sought the things that tasted good, that felt good, the entertainment of Egypt, the gods of Egypt. They never really let those things go. Help us, Lord, not to be like that. Help us to let those things go so we can embrace the new life. Help us not to be immature, but to grow up to get into your word and let you teach us and to really meditate on all the good things you've done for us and to remember that you are faithful and that where you call us to go, it's a promise that you will go before us. You've already gone before us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.